the biggest pain point for me as an engineering leader has been this kind of like advent of the programmatic infrastructure, like moving the controls away from DevOps and other non-developer functions back to the developer as expressive end state code that's scalable, that can adapt, that you know, can gracefully fail over. I don't want to be woken up at three o'clock in the morning anymore from a sev one because there's a misconfiguration in a YAML file because it pointed like a DB to the wrong location or like we've got the wrong version down or an S3 bucket was left open or like, I can't tell you how many times I'd walk in like a data pipeline felt to run because a server went down or an exception was found in the data set or a job took longer than expected or dependent task stalled. Like my data engine DevOps teams like literally spent countless hours manually trying to figure out what happened. Like these things shouldn't be happening in the 2020s. Are you spending too much on cloud object storage? With Storage DCS, you'll save up to 80% while getting unparalleled security for your data and every object is encrypted by default. Try it free at storage.io. That's S-T-O-R-J dot I-O. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Stack Overflow podcast, a place to talk all things software and technology. I am Ben Popper, the director of content here at Stack Overflow. And I am joined today by Ethan Batrasky, who is a partner at Venrock, a venture capital investing firm, and was formerly engineering product manager, leader director at Facebook. And with me, as is often the case, is our wonderful collaborator, Cassidy Williams, who is director of developer experience at Netlify. Did I get that right? DDE? Yep, that's right. Happy to be here. Welcome, Cassidy. So Ethan, why don't we start out? Yeah, tell us a little bit about like how you got into the world of software, what it was like to work at Facebook and what you worked on. And then we'll talk about sort of your role these days where you do a lot of investing in software in the world of open source, which is what we love to talk about on this podcast. Well, thank you for having me. And I'm super excited to be here with you guys. How I got into software started when I was nine because my parents sent me to computer camp uh, against my best wishes and, and hopes because I think I probably wanted to go to basketball camp or something like that. But uh, I mean, it was, it was awesome. At three o'clock in the morning, playing Red Alert <laughs> against the counselor as well. And uh, I actually became a, a developer at 13. I started a, a web development company. And just that's kind of the way I ventured my way into startups. Uh, I had my first real startup job when I was 17 and just kind of lived through the crazy.com boom. Started as a developer, ended up feeling like I had a pretty good product sense, ended up being a product manager. And then from there, ended up leading product and engineering teams through my career. And so most recently... Before Venrock, I was at Facebook. I ran the product and engineering team for one of the ads teams, and we ran a $15 billion business uh, looking over after the performance ads business. And it was a wild ride. Um, and then I found my way into Venrock. Um, while an operator, we actually started a pre-seed fund called ProFounder. Um, we ran that for five years. And you know that was a venture model that we put together with, it was 11 of us. We were all ex-founders, active operators, and we were hoping to design the venture process in the way that we wish we had it when we were first raising money. I started my first startup when I dropped out of college when I was 22. You know, most investors at that time came from a financial background or investment banking and didn't really have experience being an operator, um, sitting in those shoes, knowing what to do when shit hits the fan. And we wanted to design the process in a way that you felt like you had an extended team and that you know naturally every startup team is incomplete. And how do we help you think about how to get the product market fit and how to scale and who to hire first and how do you build go to market into your product requirements. And so we focus a lot on just like really digging in with 
the teams and just had the most amazing experience and found my, myself thinking more about my companies and the interesting problems that are going after across robotics and space and, and developer infrastructure than I was about, you know, the day-to-day of like expanding an org, dealing with, you know, strategy at, at, at the corporate level, you know, reviews and one-on-ones. And like, while it was an amazing journey, my mind was more optimized for solving six or seven different problems at once. And so that's what led me to Venrock. And I've been there for four years now. So I guess, yeah, like when you started a web development firm at 13, what what did the landscape look like? What were customers coming to you and asking for? And if you can remember, what kind of tools did you have at your disposal? I mean, what? yeah. Do you remember what you built for customers back then? Totally. To date myself, let's say when I was 13, that was like 1997. So mm-hmm. you probably had a website on GeoCities or Zoom. You Different probably Zoom. used... <laughs> You probably use like HTML marquee a lot so things could flash and move across the page, as you should. Um, I was always hoping we'd bring that back. And you probably were using Adobe Dreamweaver. Wow, this is really bringing me back. (laughs) And my like edge was I was a huge Dieter fan. I always loved Swiss design. So I thought, hey, I can make your web page a lot cleaner and a a lot more performant because remove all the crap. And then I would optimize... I guess it was like a very early version of JPEGs back then. And so you wouldn't, you know, back then like you'd use a JPEG for your entire background, right? And it would take like six minutes to load the page. Um, and and it was it was awesome. The landscape was like, you know, GeoCities. That was like your competition. I kind of remember, yeah, backgrounds doing the crawl, like they would load sort of like layer by layer for you. Like when lazy loading was established, my mind was like, Poof. Was Adobe Dreamweaver a good tool? Like maybe it was a tool of its time, but was it a good tool or was it frustrating to work with? I thought it was a great tool. I mean, I was a fan of the of the WYSIWYG approach, but the ability to actually get into the HTML and you know you're not really using CSS back then gave you like ultimate flexibility. Yet you didn't. You just had like rapid refresh. And I think at some point we lost that ability to have that kind of rapid refresh. And as we develop, as we have to you know push into our CI/CD pipeline and wait seven minutes until I can see what it looks like and make sure it passes tests. But um, I thought it was great. You know, for for what you can do back then. Oh, yes, the wonderful world of Web 1.0. I remember being able to just play around with Internet Explorer 7 and the power of transparent PNGs and uh, just messing with HTML and CSS based on viewing the source of the website. So, yeah, we're going to get, like I said, to sort of your investment thesis and your thoughts these days on open source software. But just to pass through a little bit more, can you tell us, and for the folks who are listening who are often interested in these kind of questions, when you were an engineering lead at Facebook, what kind of advice would you give to people who were joining the team? Like, what, would, what kind of advice would you give to a junior, you know, joining the team? Like, these are some things we think you should or shouldn't do. These are kind of the best practices. You know, this is how you can get the most out of your experience here and help us, you know, craft great software. Facebook is a massive behemoth. At the time, we were six or 7,000 people, and that was massive. And today, I don't know, probably like 60, 70,000 people. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, 6,000, I guess, felt small. But there was probably like, you know, 700, 800 teams. And probably at the, at the time, a fifth of the company just focused on infrastructure to support developers. Like everything from how you deploy to how you run an A-B test or a bucket to what are the APIs available. And so it was a dramatically different way of thinking, of approaching how to build. Because you didn't have to think about, 
the endpoint and how to secure the endpoint and then what the SLA on the endpoint was because that was someone else's problem. Like you mm. had to focus on how to leverage it and how to make it, make it as performant as possible, literally with the least amount of lines of code as possible, and then how to make it in a way that users love. And so there was a few pieces of, I think, eye-opening moments that we helped early engineers think through and, and folks on the product side as well. One is in the first six, eight weeks, just listen. Just listen, watch, learn. Facebook has a tremendous bootcamp program that gives you kind of the broad swath of all the tools and capabilities, and it's very overwhelming. So just play around and, and don't worry about having to check in code right away and contribute. Like it, this is about long-term investment. I think two is think about people problems. Think about the users and solve important user problems and then work your way backwards from there. And then three was always try to simplify. It's very easy to over-engineer, and especially when you give someone more time than they actually need to solve something. You have a tendency to keep adding and keep building and Three bells and whistles. Right. And we were just trying to and we were trying to do the opposite. Like strip it down to the most primitive requirements and just meet the set of guiding principles in order to what the def definition of done was and move on. And the saying of like break things, move fast, like it's not just a marketing bylines. It's just how we operate and, and it allowed us to move super fast. And yeah, there's some, some things were janky at the edges, but that was okay. Cassidy, how does that square with some of your experiences working in the industry? Varies depending on the company you go for, where some companies I've been at, they're just like, we love the concept of move fast, break things. How about move fast and write tests instead. <laughs> so, yeah. I, I think people all try to do their own variations of this, but Facebook was definitely a pioneer in a lot of these practices. Yeah, that's a fun game now. People like to say move fast and, and then they, they, they pull one on you. But um, the original, all pale imitations of the original. <laughs> so Ethan, yeah, let, let's dive a little bit into what you do now. I guess, you know, uh, from your bio, it sounds like you invest in software and Outer space. We'll leave outer space aside for today. I'm sure it is super interesting, but for the purpose of this podcast, tell us a little bit about, yeah, like when you came to Venrock, did you know that's the space you wanted to play in? Sorry, I said space. Did you know that was the sort of like industry and area you wanted to focus on or did that develop over time? And yeah, like kind of what's your broader investment thesis? Like wh what do you think about when you look out at companies in the software space and decide that, you know, you think they'll be worth or be very big companies, you know, 10, 20 years from now? Yeah. Yeah. So to give kind of some context and background for the listeners. So Venrock has been around since the 1960s. We were one of the kind of earliest venture funds originally from the Rockefeller family, really with the mandate to go back the kind of force of nature founders that, that go change the world um, across bio and tech. And so, you know, we were privileged to be some of the first investors in Apple and Intel and Illumina and Cloudflare and Gilead and others. And we're fortunate to be able to continue that tradition to this day. So today we invest across sectors with developer tools and infrastructure, kind of a long franchise of ours, the Cloudflare and Shape Security, Naira and others. And so kind of long focused on developer infra, particularly at the kind of platform and data layer, kind of as the stack continues to become more complex with that proliferation of Kubernetes and microservices and multi-hybrid cloud and streaming data. And now we have hybrid data lake houses. You, know, you want to be able to, yeah, I, I, sometimes I don't know what that means. You want to be able to build in a weekend, but scale to millions of users. But mm. up until now, that's really required significant people resources, right? Huge reliances on DevOps and SREs and SecOps. So we saw the massive opportunity and kind of what I've been kind of the biggest pain point for me as an engineering leader has been this kind of like advent of the programmatic infrastructure, like moving the controls away from DevOps and other non-developer functions back to the developer as expressive end state code that's scalable, that can adapt, that you know, can gracefully fail over, 
I don't want to be woken up at three o'clock in the morning anymore from a sev one because there's a misconfiguration in a YAML file because it pointed like a DB to the wrong location or like we've got the wrong version down or an S3 bucket was left open or like, I can't tell you how many times I'd walk in like a data pipeline felt to run because a server went down or an exception was found in the data set or a job took longer than expected or dependent task stalled. Like my data engine DevOps teams like literally spent countless hours manually trying to figure out what happened. Like these things shouldn't be happening in the 2020s. I agree completely. And I, <laughs> I personally am really excited about the developer tool space as well. Just being able to kind of decouple a lot of these things away from the core part of your product. So you can focus on that. And then when things go down and stuff, your website should still be able to generally run and not everything go down all at once. And so I guess, you know, one of the things we've talked about a lot on this podcast, yeah, is kind of there are these waves. There's almost like this pendulum swing that takes you from more tooling and complexity, like you said, that offloads work you're doing back towards, you know, sort of a sense of like more, like you said, sort of fine grained control. So you want to move us like in a direction away for the time being from some of the almost like yeah, over-architected things that can leave you with a lot of, like you said, complexity and dependencies. That would be your thesis for where things need to go in the near future or the far future. Yeah, I, I think it's the way I think about it is it's a shift away from kind of static config files and YAML files and cron jobs and things that are fixed and unresponsive to things that are in code and dynamic and adaptive. And I think mm -hmm. that also just has this change in abstracting out the myriad of complexities that we deal with today, but also it, it changes the roles of what an SRE and DevOps should do and what a developer should do. To me, that DevOps is this concept that originally started as really a concept of, right, how do you bake in operations into the developer workflow? And then somehow it morphed into a role itself. And then it morphed into like fiefdoms and that created <laughs> silos. And then that created right. tools for those silos. And that just kind of like, you know, proliferated the problem. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I do think that as it became sort of a buzzword and a best practice, and a lot of what I've been, you know, reading in, in the world of sort of like, oh gosh, I don't know what you want to call it, thought leadership and marketing over the last couple of years, you know, right, you know, you're, you're pitching the concept of DevOps to a larger enterprise that uh, in its DNA is going to then take that out and make it into its own department with its own class of middle managers. And so it, yeah, it kind of gets away from, like you were saying, the original spirit of it, which was to sort of combine the two things tighter together. But certainly, yeah, I mean, like at this point, you can go get like a master's degree in DevOps. I mean, like the, you know, the career has become well-defined as like a track with a number of different, you know, certifications or qualifications you could add to it. Totally. And I've read a number of articles on the death of DevOps and most <laughs> folks in DevOps don't return my call anymore. Still, I still love you guys. It's just the role needs to change and it needs to be less about firefighting, less about keeping the lights on and more about creating more automation and enabling more tools to increase developer productivity and increase resiliency. And you know, I, I like I love the Netflix approach of chaos engineering and you know, DevOps can be leading that kind of concept. Yeah, I think they're definitely still necessary. And so that's probably why they're just yelling at you in your inbox, but it does need to change. And the, the world needs to shift away from needing to rely on a DevOps person to make sure the 
website stays alive. It should be something that is split up across teams where where they can focus on, like you said, optimizing and automation and all of the things that can make the rest of the team more productive. But somebody has to write, you know, the SRE is the one who raised, I will be on pager duty, you know, like they accept that role and the power that comes with it. Right. And that's an interesting point because that's also introducing a, a, a new kind of paradigm in how some software or some infrastructure is being deployed and bought, right? Now we're seeing the kind of proliferation of managed services where the control plane is a SaaS service, but the execution happens within your VPC or within your environment. And the service itself is offering kind of the SRE portion and the DevOps portion, right? They're, they're maintaining uptime and responsiveness and scale. And now you can you know deploy Airflow, for example, at scale without having to add six more DevOps, two more data engineers, and three more SREs as you continue to scale the deployment. So I think that starts to become more of a norm. And it works most of the time. I think today, like 12 of the largest corporations and banks are offline for a little while. I'm sure we'll figure out within 12 hours why. But yeah, there was a piece up on the Stack Overflow blog today that I think gets back to something you said earlier, which is like why it makes sense to use Kubernetes even from the beginning. And a lot of it was kind of what you were saying, which is that as this stuff gets easier and as more of it gets outsourced, you know, away to a cloud provider who's going to help you spin up a container, you can then have this ability from the beginning to scale very easily, you know, if you happen to hit that sort of exponential point, which is a big advantage down the road. So if the overhead lift at the beginning isn't so hard because you're offloading to these managed services, then you, in the end, you know, you might end up with a lot of big overhead benefits and less I'm going to call it technical debt, but you know, like a form of technical debt, which is like having to rewrite for scale. Probably right. And it is a double-edged sword because on one end, it allows you this massive scale and simplification, but at the same time, it creates this new set of complexity because Kubernetes is not exactly a easy piece of software to run and use. And when I pull, you know, if I pull a hundred engineers, I think probably 20 will say, yes, I feel like very proficient. And the other 80 were like, I, I kind of <laughs> know how to how to deploy a Docker image and, and run it, but I'm not really sure everything else. Like what are all the bells and whistles? And when I look in the YAML file to configure, like what are all these things that I can do and how much memory should my machine have? And, you know, and the list goes on. So I think there's a lot of room to solve that, like the Heroku-esque approach, but for Kubernetes. The other thing I wanted to mention was, yeah, you, you had written a bunch of pieces about sort of commercial open source software. By the time this episode comes out, the Stack Overflow dev survey will come out soon. And as often is the case, sort of most wanted, most loved languages include Rust and Go. And this year, Kotlin, which I don't think I'd seen on the list before, but we were just sort of remarking that all of these are, you know, open in a certain sense, but also stewarded by a single, you know, like corporate organization in another. Is there some like through line between those three, you know, about that says something about how to be how to do a good job as like the steward of an open language. So yeah, I just wanted to sort of get your big picture take and let Cassidy weigh in. Like, where do you see the that happy medium of commercial and open today? And do you think it's going to be evolving? Like, is it going to look very different in five or 10 years? Or have we kind of found the sweet spot? Because it certainly seems like a lot of big corporations that once fought tooth and nail against it are now giving it a big, you know, friendly bear hug. Yeah, I, I think we're starting to see a happy medium evolve where the pendulum isn't swung too far in any direction. To me, a successful commercial open source approach is follows a few tenets. One is it makes the open core totally open and it doesn't restrict usage. Maybe there's some like a common common clause. So you 
prevent you know AWS from just like ripping it off and offering it as, as a service, but it's totally open. And there's a kind of clear set of principles between what's open and what's closed. And that set of principles are are communicated out to the community. So it might be you know individuals. This the open core is optimized for individuals. Where teams, we have another set of capabilities like RBAC and certain integrations and so on, where it's now an enterprise product. Or it might be optimized for those that are pre-revenue and, and what the requirements are for scale versus post-revenue, or it might be self-hosted versus managed service. And so I think it really depends on the project itself. But I think having that clarity creates a lot of awareness and it creates a better dialogue with the community about what goes into the open versus what goes in the close. So you don't get into the drama of like, you know, I have a new PR, but no, 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 I want that in the close roadmap. So I think that's one. I think two is I think there's always should be a graduation path for something that you deploy in, uh, into the kind of commercial product into the open. So like whether it's a Kubernetes operator or whether to certain a better UI or, you know, better, better ability to horizontally scale, like that should eventually always make it to the open because you always want to continue to contribute to the open core, drive more community engagement and excitement and continue to push the project forward. So that, I think that's super critical. And I think the third one is making sure that you don't lose sight of the community. Like the, the reason why you... The reason why there's such a tailwind in commercial open source companies where they work is that you can take the spend that you otherwise would have spent on sales and marketing to go acquire customers and move it to engineering by having a dedicated kind of open core team. And that spend is way more durable than you would spend otherwise on sales and marketing to generate new leads. Because that means all the, all the leads coming in on the commercial side are probably already decided they want to use the project or are using it and are struggling because open source is built by the community for the community, right? It's not always enterprise ready. Or they've deployed it internally or scaling it, and now they don't want to add more headcount and they need some more additional support and capabilities. And so that's this very durable flywheel that you can continue to invest into, all while building developer love and you know community engagement. And that's just a really powerful model. And that's just very different than you know just a commercial-only kind of enterprise B2B company. Cassidy, from where you sit, yeah, what is the sweet spot? And is there a direction you hope it evolves in? Yeah. And so I think the last point that you made, Ethan, is the biggest one, the the community focus one, because so many times when I see open source driven companies start to fall off the roadmap or, or of where tech is going, it's when they start to neglect their community. And it's mm. when it's when they start to focus more on their bottom line and, and their teams and start to reject community PRs and 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 community contributions and stuff. And so being able to foster that community, I think, is so key for any of these companies to do well. I think in general, funding for open source is something that still needs to be fixed. It's it's a problem that there's some companies trying to solve it, like Open Collective and Floss Bank and, and some of those. There's a lot of companies where, where they go with the sponsorship model of we'll sponsor this, this open source plan. But for every thousands of users of let's just say React Router, there's probably maybe 10 that donate to that project. I think that is is the model that needs to change the most because these open source companies I think can do so great, but funding open source in general is I think the biggest issue in open source these days. That's really interesting. I mean, when I was listening to this, I was thinking a lot about sort of the old school copyright and something that you were talking about, which is that, you know, it should always be on the roadmap that even if you're going to commercialize this, you know, then at some point down the road, it's going to become public domain and to keep those two things in balance the same way you would with like intellectual property. And I guess, yeah, one of the things that strikes me is 
if and when these open source things get commercialized, what is a great way to have trickle down is kind of a, a, a bad way of phrasing it, but to have some way of distributing, you know, the rewards of whatever comes out of using those open source tools to build these big commercial ventures, whether that's licensing or some sort of participation that goes beyond, right, tip your developer, buy me a cup of coffee, which after a while tends not to work. I'll just add one last point there. I think to Cassie's point, like I think it totally requires a shift in how the venture ecosystem thinks about open source. And it requires a rethink of the benchmarks that you expect at each stage that you think about funding. Like for us, mm. we love funding open source projects that focus just on the community and don't think about the commercial side yet. And understand that that means in the seed, you're focusing just on community. In the A, you might still be focusing just on community and growing the community engagement and contributors and you know some of the vanity metrics. And at some point, you, you'll, you'll find the right sweet spot for the commercial what the commercial divide is and able to switch over and that you could use that massive community in order to fuel and fund it. But, you know, gone are the days of, you know, raising a series A where you need a million of ARR and 40 customers and so on, so on, so on. Like in open source, that just doesn't exist. Unfortunately, there's just a mm -hmm. few of us that really understand that. Yeah, no, that's only true for uh, digital media companies. No more clicks and readers. They, they want to <laughs> see some real money. I poor compatriots in digital Sorry. media. Awesome. Well, Ethan, Cassidy, thanks to you both for coming on. Um, it's been a fascinating discussion and I'm sure, yeah, lots to unpack here for folks who are interested in building software or working in it or investing in it. I will, as we do at the end of every episode, shout out the winner of a lifeboat badge. Somebody who came on Stack Overflow and found a question with a score of negative three or less, gave it an answer and the question went up to a score of three or more. And that answer has a score of 20 or more. So to Denise Vuka, how do I configure Yarn as the default package manager for Angular CLI? awarded July 18th. All right. Well, if you're curious about that, we'll have an answer for you in the show notes. We'll say our goodbyes. I am Ben Popper, director of content here at Stack Overflow. You can always find me on Twitter at Ben Popper. You can always email us podcast at stackoverflow.com. And if you like the show, leave it a rating and a review. Cassidy, tell people who you are and where they can find you on the net. I'm Cassidy Williams, director of developer experience at Netlify. You can find me at Cassidoo, C-A-S-S-I-D-O-O -O, on most things. Wonderful. And Ethan, tell people who you are, where they can find the internet, and yeah, if they have an idea about software open source, where they should reach out when it comes to Venrock. Boy, well, I'm Ethan Matroski. I'm a general partner at Venrock, and you can reach me on most platforms at, at EthanJB. Awesome. All right, everybody. Thanks for coming on. We'll talk to you soon. <laughs>